For our time this morning, we'll be reading uh, two chapters of Scripture, a bit out of the ordinary, but I'd like us to read both chapters 3 and 4 as we come to the book of Genesis again. It's Genesis chapter 3. We'll begin our reading there at verse 1, and we'll conclude at the end of chapter 4. It's Genesis chapter 3, starting at the first verse. Hear now the word of our God. Now the servant was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. And ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for fruit, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commandest thee, that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle. Above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dost thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil, and now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. 
Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And Adam knew his wife, knew Eve his wife, and she conceived, and there came and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother, and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy land. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and dwelt in the land of Nod, on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived of their Enoch, the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And unto Enoch was born Erad, and Erad, Mehujiel, and Mehujiel begat Methusiel, and Methusiel begat Lamech. And Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zelah. And Ada bare Jabal. He was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handle the heart and organ. And Zelah, she also bare Tubal Cain. An instructor of every artificer of brass and iron, and the sister of Tubal Cain was Naam. And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zila, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech. Hear, hearken unto my speech. For I have slain a man to my wounding, and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, seventy and sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. 
and Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Amen. And may the Lord add to us this morning the blessing of his word. This morning we took time to read two chapters of Genesis, in part to draw connections between the first and the second chapter that we've read. In the third chapter, you'll notice that, of course, you have that progression. You have that moment in which Eve is tempted, that temptation coming to its fruition in the fall of Adam and Eve. And then you have the curse. You have man experiencing the fruit of his sin. In the fourth chapter, you have something very similar, don't you? You have men now making sacrifice to God, Cain and Abel. And then you have the fall of Cain. What's striking is, in that parallel, you have a very similar question asked by the Lord. What I'm speaking here, of course, is what you have here in verse 9. Where is Abel, thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? You see, the Lord is asking very much a very similar question to what the Lord asked Adam and Eve in the garden. He's, of course, the omniscient God. He's the one who knows all things from the beginning to the end. And yet he comes to these ones, the first of Adam's fallen race, with this question. And obviously the point of the question is to draw forth that confession. And note, friend, in Genesis 4, you don't have that. There is no confession. All that you have is Abel's blood crying from the ground. A ground, by the way, that we should remember from the third chapter that is cursed. And note what ensues. This cursed ground that bears forth the sin of Cain, this cursed ground, now says the Lord, will become even harder for Cain to work. When thou tillest the ground, he says, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. Again, of course, this looks back, doesn't it, to the end of Genesis 3, where there you have the man who is created by God to be earth's vice chairman, the one who would rule over for God's sake, all the lesser creatures. Now these things, instead of being pliable under his hand, these things become rebellious, as it were. Well, Cain finds that by his sin as well, the same takes place. He, be- he finds by experience now that though the curse was bad before, there's actually a progression of his judgment, a progression, as it were, of God's displeasure. And as you continue to read through Genesis 4, the parallels just continue to work themselves out. You'll notice that as you come, of course, to Cain's posterity, what do you find? Well, you find, of course, that man is bearing forth man, just as God had said that he would. Man would multiply on the earth. But what takes place? Shortly after Cain and his progenitor and his posterity, rather, are named, you have murder. The very same thing that ends Genesis 3 and begins Genesis 4. The reason why I'm drawing out these parallels for us, and instead of doing the literary analysis that we would normally do, is to draw attention just to the idea that the narrator is really honing in on. Sin is begetting sin. The curse is begetting greater difficulty, greater pain. I think it's important for us to keep these two things in mind, because often I think when we look at the third chapter of Genesis, we think that this is really a stopping point. But for the narrator, it's not a stopping point. It's the beginning of a decline. Of course, it's cataclysmic in its moment. It's the inception of the decline itself. But 
But as we work through the book of Genesis, you'll notice that the narrator will continue to show out those parts of history that do show forth that pattern. Sin, decline. Further sin, further decline. Now, of course, that's one of the reasons that it's fruitful for us to look at these two chapters together. But there's also another reason as well. As you look at this text, you can't miss also the the men, well, the man and the woman, rather, who stand in the background. Before, in Genesis 3, of course, to the foreground, you have Adam and Eve. And that's, of course, very sensible. They're the only two of mankind that are alive. But then as you come to the fourth chapter, you notice that it begins with Adam and Eve, and then they recede into the background. Cain and Abel become primary features, and then eventually Cain's posterity are the primary focus for the narrator. But as you come to the end of the fourth chapter, which if you remember back to our comments at the beginning of our study, the fourth chapter, the end of it, marks the end of the first major section in the book. The end of the first major section brings us back to Adam and Eve. I want you to notice what's striking here is in the first and in the last portion of chapter 4, you have Eve speaking. As they come back to the foreground, it's not Adam who speaks, it's Eve. I want you to just note the comparison between these two moments. If you look at verse 1, you note this. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Then if you turn over to the end of the fourth chapter, you'll notice what Eve says there. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain swear. Now folks, as we look at this text, it's very easy for us to simply say that this is just a simple retelling of history. There's no real significance to the focus that the narrator places on these moments. But as we hold together Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, of course we see there's incredible significance. Take, for example, the first verse of chapter 4. We have just left the third chapter. The third chapter, the 15th verse, holds out to us the promise that there would come from the woman a seed, a deliverer. They would come from Eve, be the seed of the woman, and from that seed, the curse would be undone, and even greater redemption would be procured. And then you note, in the first verse of the fourth chapter, Eve draws careful attention to the fact that she has gotten a man-child from the Lord. Now, as our forebears would look at this text, they would say here that you have already, very clearly, in Adam and Eve, a picture of faith. It's debatable whether or not she thought that Cain might have been the one who had been promised. But certainly Eve knew this much, that she would bear a child, and that child would eventually, of course, bear the one who would come, who, from whom would come redemption. She was assured, in other words, that there would come a seed, would arise a seed from mankind who would deliver And so you see already in the first verse of chapter 4 a kind of expectation and an expectation that is grounded on the promise that you have in 3.15. When you come then to the end of the fourth chapter, you're supposed to keep that in mind. Eve is looking believingly back to Genesis 3.15. When she says here, God, she says, I've appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. Now, friend, this is incredibly profound. 
She sees Abel as her seed, not Cain. It's a remarkable reversal, isn't it? She doesn't look at the progenitor, the, the progeny of Cain, rather, as being part of hers. Isn't that striking? She sees something else. She sees that she is more connected to Abel, though Cain was her firstborn. And then she sees that in the giving of Seth, there she has the promise fulfilled, or at least secured. There would come a seed. Now, what do we have here? Friend, if you look through Genesis 3 and onward throughout the scriptures and beginning in the fourth chapter here, we are supposed to see here that these ones are those who are believing. Adam and Eve are believing in the promise that God has given. And as you look at Abel, now we're going to spend more time in chapter 4, God willing, next Lord's Day. But as you look at Abel, what do you see? You see a man, according to Hebrews 11, who is possessed of that self-same faith. And so, friend, when Christ looks at Abel and looks at him slain by Cain, what does he say? He says that he's a martyr. In fact, he says that he's a martyr within the same cause, able to righteous Zacharias, and a cause, I'm sorry, a martyr who possessed the same cause as all the martyrs of the Old Covenant. That is, those looking by faith to Jesus Christ. And then when you come to the end of the fourth chapter, whenever Eve makes this very clear connection with Abel and not with Cain, she sees herself connected primarily to the household of faith then. And note what takes place. God in his grace raises Seth. From Seth he raises Enos. And then note this in verse 26. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. We're supposed to understand that phrase in verse 26 looks far more to what we would call revival. It's not that they didn't call upon the name of the Lord before. In fact, in Genesis 4, you have, of course, sacrifice being made to God. Abel's was at least a genuine calling upon the Lord. In verse 26, you have here the idea that God in His grace is now visiting His church. You have the church beginning to take form. And you really have, and I think Jonathan Edwards is probably the most helpful at this point, you really have the idea that here you have the seed, the seed of the woman, always the focus of that line that would go from Seth and forward until we get, of course, to Genesis 6. And then it is those who are looking to this Christ who then will know the blessings of the Lord, such as the revival that you have in verse 26. Now, I suppose I could go on here, but as we only have about five more minutes left, allow me to just explain why we've taken this text a little differently than we would normally. Typically, as I said before, our aim is, as we look at each chapter, to take each chapter as a literary unit, uh, to examine the structure, to, to see the things that the writer himself is emphasizing. But in times like this, I think it's helpful for us to remember that there is a divine author behind the text. He, of course, is the one who's its primary author. And as he's doing, as he's giving to us scripture, he's revealing himself to us, in which the entire counsel of God may be brought to bear. And so, friend, as you look at Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, we can't divorce ourselves from thinking about what the scriptures say as they reflect upon these moments. We can't forget, of course, that Abel was a martyr. In fact, we could even call him, in many senses, a Christian martyr. He was already looking, by faith, to Jesus Christ. And we can't miss either that the Lord God, even in these early ages, was forming a church to himself. 
He was forming that household of faith that would be fixed upon Jesus Christ. That household to which you and I belong. I think in many ways it's helpful for us to think theologically in these moments. Um, I think for New Testament Christians, at least those who are quick to call themselves such, we forget that, friend, when you and I are brought into the fold, when you and I are brought into the household of faith, we can turn even to Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 and find that our progeny begins there, our posterity begins there, and we even see the blessing of the Lord upon his people even there. We'll close with that, and as I said, God willing, next Lord's Day morning, we'll be taking up uh, the fourth chapter as a literary unit, returning in one, many senses to what we had normally would normally done. But as we close, let's do so by turning back to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Our gracious and merciful God, we come before you, Father, thankful for your word. Lord, we are thankful that here you show us Christ. And even here we see that the grace of Jesus Christ is known to men. Father, we do thank you that you are God who is pleased to redeem men. And we do thank you, Father, that even, even in these moments, we find that though the church will suffer, though she will be reviled by the world, you will preserve her. Zion shall stand. And so, Heavenly Father, we do pray that these things would comfort us. We ask, Heavenly Father, most of all, that these things would fill us with praise, that we would become a people who more and more rejoice in the fact that our God is a strong rock, and that in his name all those who look to Christ find shelter. Bless us, O gracious God, as we leave this hour. We pray that as we come into the hour to come, you would fix us upon this grace. We pray, Heavenly Father, that even, even in this place and this day, we would see the end sign of grace uplifted. We would see souls brought to Him. And under the powerful ministration of Your Spirit, we would find Your people outside. Heavenly Father, we ask all of these things only through Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Oh,